You're listening to the Formation Church Podcast. Formation exists to be a safe place for hurting people to find healing relationship with Jesus. For more information about the ministry of Formation in Salt Lake City, Utah, visit our website at formationslc.com. Start today talking about the power of an oath which we probably don't think a ton about in our day-to-day lives, but an oath, you know, is just any words that we would ever use to establish the truthfulness of something that we're saying. And while you may not think about taking oaths on a daily basis, the truth is from the youngest age, we actually start to work really hard to establish the truthfulness of what we're saying by declaring various types of oaths. Now, some of them that we, we probably even remember. For instance, how many of you remember this phrase from when you were a kid, okay? Cross my heart and hope to die. Now, remember that from when you were a kid. It's, it's really pretty dark if you consider it. And, and the sad part is it just gets worse. Do you remember the back half? It's like, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. I want to know what was going on in our childhoods that we believed it was appropriate for us to vow that as a six-year-old. Now, regardless, the point of this oath and the point of every oath that can ever be taken or sworn is to help establish two things, credibility and trust. And this is why we say things even today like, I swear I'm telling the truth or I promise that I will do what I've said. Now, here's what is sad if you really think about it. An oath assumes that honesty needs to be established because it isn't always present. Because if honesty was always present, there'd be no need for an oath. We wouldn't have to do anything to establish credibility and trust because we're just always telling the truth. But that is sadly not the case. And unfortunately, the research that exists confirms the chronic nature of dishonesty in our culture. For instance, one study found that two-thirds of American youth admit lying to a parent, teacher, or someone else in the last three months. By the way, the other one-third were lying when they took the survey. (laughs) There's no way. A third of students admit to cheating on a test in the last three months. Um, They're 60% admit to lying to a peer. And we might think, well, that's just something that kids do. But the truth is, that's, again, not what research shows. The Huffington Post reported on a University of Massachusetts psychologist named Robert Feldman, who has been studying lying for more than a decade. And he found that 60, this is mind-blowing, 60% of people lie during a typical 10-minute conversation and they lie an average of three times in that duration. Isn't that crazy? So think about 60% of this room. You've all been talking for about 10 minutes. You guys have all lied all morning long. But most people didn't even realize that they had lied when they watched it back on video. So they were watching the playback of a conversation that was recorded, and they are going, oh, wow, yeah, I I just boldface lied three times in that conversation, but didn't realize it in the moment. He also found that men and women lie at equal rates, but for different reasons, and I did not find this at all shocking. So listen to this. Women, he reports, were most likely to lie to make the person they were talking to feel better, while men lied most often to make themselves look better. (laughs) I read that, and I was like, that tracks, for sure. So it turns out, 
Mark Twain was right when he said, a man is never more truthful than when he acknowledges himself a liar. And so here's the point of this very sobering starting place this morning. Since the beginning, humanity has had a tendency toward both deceit and its fruit, the failure to follow through on commitments that are made. Just think about it. The serpent lied, twisting God's words to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. Then Cain lies about Abel in Genesis 4. Abraham lied about Sarah in Genesis 12. Jacob lied to both his brother Esau and their father in Genesis 27. Joseph's brothers deceived their father Jacob in Genesis 37. Like, we're not even out of Genesis yet, and I skipped some lies in in Genesis. So what you and I are guilty of is very similar things. We embellish stories. We say things we don't really mean. Sometimes we do lie. We abandon things that we have committed to. We show up late when we've promised to be someplace at a particular time. And so the ways in which that we fail to just tell the truth and follow through abound. Humanity is not known for its honesty. And because of this, oaths and vows exist in order to establish the truthfulness of what we're saying or committing to. And so as we continue to consider some essential shifts that we need to make as a community, here's the big idea this morning where we're going to spend our time. It's pretty simple. Followers of Jesus should follow through. Followers of Jesus should follow through. And so I think sometimes we have these very elaborate visions of what it looks like to be a mature follower of Jesus. Like maybe we think about a Christian monk whose entire life is devoted to just being with Jesus. And so sometimes we just have these elaborate visions. But you know, more often than not, being a mature follower of Jesus looks like being a decent human being. It looks like just being who God actually created us to be as humans. And so as we look at this, I want to invite you to open your Bibles or an app if you have anything that you like to read on personally. Go to Matthew chapter 5. So that's the first book in the New Testament. We're going to be in verses 33 to 37. If you don't have a Bible on you this morning, the scripture is going to be up on the screen. And so this morning, I want to discuss the shift from flaking out to following through. Okay? The shift from flaking out to following through. Because the reality is, like, I don't know if you've noticed this, but sometimes we flake out. And we don't follow through on the things that we have committed to. And so for context's sake... Let me just explain what's happening here in Matthew 5 before we jump in. We are in the midst of what is uh, traditionally called the Sermon on the Mount. Now, this was not, uh, unlike it reads in the Gospels, it was most likely not a time that Jesus sat down and taught three chapters and about 50 sermons all at once. It's probably a collection of the majority of what Jesus taught over and over again in various contexts. And so that's the Sermon on the Mount. And as was common in his teaching... As we come to our text today, Jesus is correcting what the religious leaders of his day were teaching regarding both the place and the practice of the Old Testament law. See, what they had done was diminish the law to the letter of it, and they had missed the spirit. That's overall what Jesus is correcting in the Sermon on the Mount. They had missed God's actual intent for the Old Testament law. And instead, they sought to use it to try to control indwelling sin. 
And we learn over and over through these chapters that attempting to control failure through external means is inferior to a heart and a life that are surrendered to the way of Jesus through faith. And so Jesus, in our verses today, applies that in the context of vows, oaths, truth-telling, and following through here. So look with me at uh, Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 33. Jesus starts like this. He says, again, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. Now, pause there for a second. As he is prone to do in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus starts with the Torah, with the Old Testament law, and he unpacks its intent, and then he applies it. Now, unlike the paragraphs that come before this, Jesus doesn't use a direct Old Testament quotation, but rather he's using what was most likely the Pharisees' summary of a few Old Testament passages. For instance, uh, Leviticus 19.12, Numbers 30, verse 2, Deuteronomy 23. Jesus summarizes those three passages here in verse 33 by saying, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. So if you don't know, in the first century Jewish culture, an oath was a solemn statement affirmed to be true before God. Now, the binding nature of an oath existed on a spectrum. And some of this might sound a little dry, but it's really important for understanding what Jesus is getting at here. The Jewish Mishnah, which was a commentary on the Old Testament, had an entire section outlining these various oaths and divided them into classes. On this spectrum. And so on one end, you had what Jesus calls here an oath to the Lord. And then on the other end of that spectrum, you had oaths taken in the name of things like heaven and earth and Jerusalem or one's own life, as Jesus is going to highlight in the verses to come. Now, this spectrum existed because of the common belief that a lie between two people didn't really involve God unless his name had been invoked. So if you were going to lie to someone, or you weren't really sure if you were going to follow through on something that you had committed to, you certainly did not swear by God's name, because then it was considered a binding oath, and therefore sin if you broke it. And the truth is, there is a spectrum of severity in our own culture when it comes to truthfulness and follow through. I'll give you an example. Imagine that you were sitting with a judge, and you're just having coffee as friends. Imagine they ask you a question and you choose to lie to that judge in response. If you do that, you're in no legal trouble for that lie over coffee. But imagine that you were in the courtroom and you put your hand on a Bible and you swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help you God. And then that judge asks you a question and you lie then it's a very different situation. At that point, you've broken the law and you have committed perjury. And the difference is the binding nature of that oath. And so this was an everyday reality for the Jewish people at this time, and this is what Jesus is speaking into. The religious norm of his day said that it wasn't a problem to be less than truthful or to fail to follow through in your commitments as long as you did not take an oath in God's name. Now, I hope that we can see how just maybe that misses the mark of God's intent for truthfulness without even wading into the next verses. Like Jesus is going to go on, he has more to say, but we barely need that because we can see how this just totally misses God's intent. Honesty does not live on a spectrum. 
You are either an honest truth teller or you are not. So a so-called white lie or embellished story may be less damaging than perjury, but it is no less of a lie. And followers of Jesus should follow through. And Jesus hammers this home next. Look at verse 34. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, because it's God's throne, or by earth, because it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, because it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, because you cannot make a single hair white or black. But let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. Anything more than this is is from the evil one. So notice that Jesus starts with this overarching correction. He says, but I tell you, don't take an oath at all. Now, some people have interpreted this in the most literal sense possible, and they've missed the hyperbole that was such a common tool in Jesus' teaching and communication. And as a result of that, some followers of Jesus have refused to take legal oaths. They would refuse to join the military or do anything that requires taking an oath of any kind. And while I believe that that's well-intentioned, I also believe it misses the heart of what Jesus is saying. For one thing, the Old Testament law did permit oaths. I'll give you a couple of examples. It'll be up on the screen. Look at Deuteronomy 6.13. It says, Fear the Lord your God, worship him, and take your oaths in his name. Furthermore, in Deuteronomy 10, verse 20, we read, You are to fear the Lord your God and worship him, remain faithful to him, and take oaths in his name. And it isn't just in the Old Testament. Jesus himself responded to the high priest's questioning after being put under oath in Matthew 26, 63 to 64. It says, but Jesus kept silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the son of God. You have said it, Jesus told him, but I tell you in the future, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power coming on the clouds of heaven. So there Jesus seems to contradict himself if we interpret this in a, legal way, in, in a literal way because he then takes an oath and responds while under oath. So the point in this is to say, should you ever end up testifying in court, and let's hope that doesn't become like a norm in your life, you're not obligated to forego that oath based on what Jesus says here. The larger point that he's trying to convey is that a follower of Jesus should not need an oath in order to establish the truthfulness of his or her speech. Followers of Jesus, instead, should be known for their honest and faithful follow-through. And he emphasizes this by showing how foolish all of their hair-splitting was. Because just listen again to verses 34 and 35. He says, But I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, because that's God's throne, or by the earth, because it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, because it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, because you cannot make a single hair black or white. So notice here that Jesus, there was this, all of this debate in their culture about when an oath was binding, which is proof that people of faith have always had a tremendous ability to debate stupid things that don't matter. Okay, that's not like a modern Christian thing. That's always been a problem. Nobody wanted to violate an oath taken in God's name. And so as a result, they started to take oaths in the name of other things that they deemed less important, which is pretty fascinating if you really think about it. And Jesus gives four examples, heaven, earth, Jerusalem, and one's own head. And so his point, if you read his words and you sit with them, his point is that this hair splitting was absurd because God's present in all of his creation. 
So it's not like as long as you don't say his name, it's not a spell, then, then you're in the clear. God is in all of his creation, Jesus says. There is nowhere that God is not. And so Jesus moves from swearing on the greatness of God to the smallness of humanity. To swear by your head was to swear on one's own life. And Jesus is saying, this is kind of sobering, but he said, why would, you, why would anyone swear in the life of something that lacks the power to do something as simple as change the color of one's hair? God is present everywhere and in everything. And so trying to distance oneself from the name of God in order to gain more freedom to be deceitful or less than faithful simply doesn't work. And so as a result, Jesus says, you don't need to take oaths. Just let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. Be a person of your word or do the things that you say you will do. Followers of Jesus should follow through. And so let's go ahead and drag this into the day-to-day life of our community. Because remember, we've been trying to sit with a text and then figure out and discern, Lord, what's the shift that you're inviting us to in this? And so this series has been, and I think this is worth just calling out, this series has been what I would call high challenge. Um, At times, it's been what I almost named it was uh, an uncomfortably clear series about us. And so we've chosen to face some things that need to shift in our culture and in our community. And some of those things have been hard, and most of those things have been pretty uncomfortable. And in the midst of all of this, I want you to know I am so encouraged by how we have responded as a church. For instance, lots of people are showing up faithfully for worship unless they're sick or they're traveling. Serving slots are filling up more quickly. And I don't know if everyone realizes this, but you know that over 70% of our church signed up to be in a community group. And if you don't know, that is a staggering percentage compared to what is normative in most churches. And Lord willing, we're going to continue to, we're going to start groups again in January. And so I'm hoping to see that percentage be even higher come January. But that's such a strong start for us. I've also seen people working to solve problems that arise for themselves rather than just handing them off to someone else. Our giving is holding strong. So there is so much to be encouraged by. And I still think, in light of what Jesus is saying here, there are a couple of things for us to consider. And I want to preface this, okay? Because whether it's in conversations that I've been having or some of the conversation I've heard about in uh, community groups, there are some people that every time they listen to a message of any kind, even if they are like, let's just say, perfectly in line with what's being conveyed, they always walk away feeling guilty, like they should be doing more. And so please hear this as the one who is our primary teacher here. Not every sermon is for everyone. So, now I want to be careful because I don't want you coming in going like, this one's for you. But I do want you to learn to listen in a discerning manner. Because if you're here and you are fully participating in the life of our church, which we define as attending, serving, giving, and in community, then much of what we're talking about isn't an invitation to you to do so much more. That's part of the problem, is we have a handful of people doing way more than what they need to do, when the truth is, if we all do our part, then it's sustainable for all of us. So I want you, even as I have a couple of specific things to wade into right here, listen in a discerning manner. If there's something God's inviting to you, great. But if you're already fully participating, don't feel like you're being pushed or pressured to take on more. Does that make sense? Some, it doesn't matter what I say. Some of you are going to anyways. 
<clears throat> so two things to consider through the lens of what Jesus is talking about here. First thing I would say is, it is very easy as we're talking about shifts, okay? As we launch community groups or we invite people to serve, it is very easy to nod along in a moment, but then not follow through in response. Now, here's what I mean by that. As we talked for months about, or not months, but a couple of months about community groups, it's very easy to sit, I see this happen all the time, where we sit in a service like this, and we, we have like an emotional reaction to what we're hearing, or we even really sense the Spirit of God going like, this would be really good for you. There's something here I am inviting you to. And we nod along in the moment. Maybe we even open the info card and we go, yep, I need to do that. And then we leave this place and we're like, I am definitely not going to do that. So it's very, very easy for us to nod along in a moment, but then not follow through in response to something that God might be stirring in this place. And I would say that in application, that is a violation of what Jesus is commending to us as his followers. He wants us to follow through on the things to which we commit. Now, secondly, I would also argue that it is easy to change our behavior momentarily, but it's hard to maintain it in the long run. So, maybe you sign up to serve, for instance, and maybe you've been around for a year and you're like, you finally signed up and you served once, you're like, glad I got that out of the way. I'm never doing that again. Okay, that would not be a change in behavior, that was just like a momentary act. And what we're after in these shifts, shifts is long-term change in the way that we function as a community. Another example would be that you signed up to be in a community group, but you have not yet actually gone. Man, come as you're able to. I understand conflicts happen. I know that many of us are overcommitted already, but I want to continue to implore you. If you are overcommitted and overstretched, the place to make cuts is not with your community of faith. The place to make cuts is in hobbies. The place to make cuts might be in how overworked some of us are. We need this. And if you really, like I did the math this morning, what we, like what we are really inviting you to in the average week is two 90-minute commitments. 90 minutes in a service like this, and 90 minutes in a community group. So I'm not awesome at math, so I got a calculator out. That's three hours a week. In a week, marked by 168 hours. I had to double check. And I asked Siri, so I know this is true. That's less than 2% of the week. That's not a big commitment. I don't think that's an unrealistic ask. And it isn't an ask for my benefit. It's an ask for your benefit. It's an ask for your soul. It's an ask for your spiritual health. It's an ask for your experience of community. And so we all are in different seasons of life. Things come up. Cuts have to be, I understand all of that. And I continue, want to be high invitation on this. Because we need Jesus. We need relationship with him. And we need relationship with one another. And this long-term change in behavior can be very, very difficult to sustain, which is why, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is always so concerned with heart change. He wants inside-out change for us, not so much outside-in. And so if we're honest, like maybe you've even had this thought listening to what Jesus has to say here today. 
some sin that Jesus turns his attention to in the New Testament seems pretty small in like the grand scheme of things. Like there are so many massive issues in our hearts. There's so many massive issues of sin in our world that we might read verses like this and think like, really, Jesus? Is this really so important that it needed to be sealed in Scripture and brought to our attention forever? Like some sin just seems small. Does a white lie here and there really matter? Does an embellished story to impress someone really do any damage? Does a disingenuous comment or compliment to make someone feel better really a problem? Does it really matter if we say we're going to be somewhere at 10 and we show up at 10.15? Like some sin just seems really small. But here's why Jesus turns his attention to sin that seems small on the surface. It's because small sins are like hairline cracks in our hearts. And so I want you to think about the way that canyons are formed. You know, canyons don't start as canyons. They actually start as cracks. They're cracks that are eroded over time by wind and rain and often rivers that run through them. And eventually, what was at one time nothing but a crack turns into the canyons that mark the face of the mountains here in Salt Lake that we're surrounded by. And I think there's a critical lesson about sin in this for us. And that lesson is this. The size of sin doesn't determine the scope of its damage. The size of sin doesn't determine the scope of its damage. So what seems like an unaddressed crack in your character right now has the very real potential to turn into a canyon later. I've had some conversations with people this week, and this happens every week, it's not like unique to this week, of people that just have these massive issues of sin that they're trying to wade through and discern their way through and find grace in and find healing and find change and learn how to repent, just these huge things. And you can always track them back to something that started as a crack. And so I would implore you not to be seduced by the seemingly small nature of sin in your life. Jesus wants to seal the cracks. And so the question is, as it pertains to truth-telling and following through that Jesus has been talking about today, where do you need him to seal up the cracks in your life? Think about the spectrum. Maybe, maybe you're here and you're a compulsive liar. My youngest son has a kid in his class, I am convinced, is a compulsive liar. Because he comes home every day, he's like, you're not going to believe what so-and-so said. You're like, I'm, I, I, you're right, I'm not going to. This kid has never told the truth in his whole life. So maybe... Maybe that's where you're at. Maybe getting smaller. Maybe you're just chronically late all the time. And I know people who are late hate hearing about this. And that's okay. I love you. And I don't know what to tell you. And maybe it's not because of some like very understandable reason, but just like you really just don't really respect other people's time. I would argue that's a crack. Maybe you're prone to overpromise and underdeliver. I don't know what that crack might be, and I don't need to know, because that crack is between you and the Spirit of God. But what I would encourage you in is not to ignore what might right now appear to be nothing more 
than a little hairline fracture. Because that crack, if it's ignored, can turn into a crevice. And that crevice may one day become the canyon that swallows your life whole. That's how it happens. No one wakes up lockstep in intimacy with Jesus one day, and then the next day commits some horrible heinous, like there's a process there. There is a series of decisions. There are cracks that got neglected along the way that get us there. It doesn't happen in a moment. It happens over time. And the way that we avoid waking up one day, opening our eyes, realizing I have shipwrecked my whole life through this decision. We avoid that by becoming a people who sit with the Spirit of God to seal up our cracks. Followers of Jesus should follow through. So let's take the steps necessary to seal up any of these cracks in the truthfulness of our speech together. Let me pray for us. And then those of you who are chronically late can text in your questions about how annoying that is, okay? (laughs) Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you're a good God. And I thank you that you love us. Thank you that your only intent for us is always our good. Jesus, you said that you came so that we might have life and have it abundantly. And so often, Lord, our lo- we don't feel like we're experiencing abundant life. And part of that is because the world that we live in is hard. And part of that is because there are things in our lives that are out of step with what you have created us to be and to do. And so, Spirit of God, we just invite you to shine a light into our hearts in this moment. And I thank you, Lord, that you use a spotlight, not a floodlight in moments like this. You don't show us everything that needs to be changed because that would so overwhelm us. And so, Spirit of God, would you shine your spotlight and illuminate even just a singular crack Lord, only you can do that. And I pray that you would help us not to be resistant or defensive. That we would hear what you are saying to us as an invitation to more life, to more flourishing. And for us as a community, that we would be more healthy. And that we would be able to further see your kingdom expand in us and through us in the city that you've called us all to right now. So we ask that you would help us in Jesus' name.